Is the Lord among us or not? Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Is the Lord among us or not? Is there a more pointed or poignant question in all of the scriptures? Is God with us or not? Our lives depend on the answer to that question. Is God with us or not? I like how Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. She says, if God is with us, then nothing else matters. And if God is not with us, well, then nothing else matters. God is with us, nothing else matters. And if God is not with us, then nothing else matters. I think it's easy sometimes to knock the Israelites for their faithlessness. I mean, they've seen it all. The power of Passover. They'd made meals of the manna. I mean, they walked through the Red Sea with unmoistened feet. God has been this pillar, this cloud for them for a long, long time. They've seen, tasted, touched the glory of God. But they complain. Why? Why do they quarrel? Why do they test? Why do they complain? Well, because they're thirsty. Because they're thirsty and also because they're just like us. Now, hopefully none of us here will ever know the kind of thirst that Israel felt that day. We, thankfully, here in Roanoke, we can turn on our faucets and we can drink the water without worry. Now, of course, there are some people in our country who can't do that. They can't trust the water that comes from their faucets, but, but we can. And yet, even with water to drink and food to eat, grumbling is never far away. Grumbling is what we do. We grow frustrated with our children when they fail to do what we ask. We lament their inability to remember rules, to act accordingly at school, to chip in around the house every once in a while. We complain when our spouses just can't seem to read our minds. We grow bitter at the tiniest, tiniest things in the, until they become this giant pile of resentment brings everything to a screeching halt. We quarrel even in the church. Even in the church. Are we really going to sing that hymn one more time? Really? We, we whisper about people from our pews. Did you see she's wearing the same dress two Sundays in a row? We bicker. We complain. We quarrel. And most of the time, most of the time when we feel this unease, when, when things are not as we would like them to be, we look to other people to fix what's wrong inside of us. When we feel empty, when we feel thirsty, our first assumption is that it's somebody else's fault and it's also somebody else's responsibility for fix it. Did you notice when Brian was reading the scripture that when they're thirsty, the people don't go to Moses and say, Moses, you know, we've been looking everywhere. We checked the dry riverbeds, we looked in the lake, we looked in all the places that you should find water, and we can't find anything. It's all dried up. No one said, all they say is, hey Moses, give us something to drink. Give us something to drink. I love that Moses then prays to, to the Lord, God, I think these people are going to try to stone me. I think they're going to hurl rocks at me. And it's like something clicks in God's mind. Oh, you said something about rocks? I have an idea. Moses, go strike that rock. I'll show you what I can do with a rock. It's scapegoating, really, what the Israelites do. It's as old as time. 
looking to other people to fix the problems within us. I can remember my grandmother, maybe your grandmother did the same. My grandmother taught me, when you point your finger at someone, Taylor, you're always pointing three fingers back at you. You ever heard that before? When you point at somebody else, remember, you're pointing three fingers back at you. Jesus has another expression. He says, why are you so concerned about the speck in someone else's eye and you can't even see the log that's in your own? The more we grumble, the more we complain, the more we quarrel, the more we all walk away feeling empty. Empty. I've shared on a number of occasions how much I love words. I love words. I work in the world of words, but my favorite words are churchy words. The words we uh, keep locked up in the vault here at church and we parade them out on Sunday morning, we, we you know, polish them off and then we lock them back up after worship. The words you don't hear anywhere else, I got a churchy word for you, idolatry. Oh, everyone's favorite word, idolatry. Even in the Methodist church, we don't pray this one out too often. Idolatry. Do you know what idolatry is? Idolatry is looking to somebody else to give you what only God can give. It's looking to someone or something else to give you what only God can give. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God but the Lord. It's the one we break the most. For us today, our, our idols, those, those bits of idolatry that we worship, our career, our bank account, our children, our spouses, our parents, a political party, a sport team, all these different things. We look to them to provide meaning and value and belonging in our lives, and they all come up short. They always do. Israel and Egypt, they had no hope for a future. They're slaves. They're forced to till the land. They're belittled just for being there. They have horrific conditions, and God shows up, delivers them into a strange new land, but they grumble. We still grumble. Because no matter how much we think the grass will be greener on the other side, you know what's on the other side? More grass. But notice, God shows up in this story when the people grumble, when they complain. Of course, God responds to faithfulness. We hear about it all the time. But I think it's important to remember that God also shows up for faithlessness. I love Moses again. Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? And God says, you know, Moses, I've been thinking the same thing about you. Is that in the scriptures? No. But it'd be better if it was. What am I going to do with these people? I don't know, Moses. Go hit that rock. See what happens. God, in spite of all of our earnings and deservings, which don't amount to much to begin with, shows up for a people who grumble and complain and threaten to kill Moses. God shows up for people who are thirsty. God makes a way where there is no way, and it happens all the time. A few weeks ago, in the middle of the series, the first service, I, I had this offhand comment, unprepared, un, unwritten sentence. I just said to everyone, seeing deliverance is something we can't really see in the present moment. We can only see it as it happened in the past. And it doesn't take long to think back in our lives to a moment that felt like a dead end, where it felt like there was nowhere to go. But from this vantage point, we can see how God somehow brought us from there to where we are. We can't really do it in the present. It was an offhand comment. And at the end of the service, I was shaking hands afterward, and one by one, people from our first light service came to me with stories. 
They said, you know, I hadn't thought about it like that, but my wife and I were at the end of our rope. I didn't think we were going to stay together. And then this outside thing happened, totally unexpected, and it brought us closer together, and now we're still together. Somebody told me about how they thought they were about to get fired, terrified about what that was going to mean for their family, no income anymore. But then a friend called and said, hey, I'm starting a new company, and I want to hire you. One by one by one, people from our church shared with me stories of how God made a way where there was no way. I think that's why, for centuries, the church keeps coming back to these stories, these stories from the strange new world of the Bible, because they're stories about us. When we read these stories, when we sing of these stories, when we pray over these stories, it gives us the space to see who we were and who we are now because of God. Not because we've earned anything or deserved anything, not because we've got the perfect dogmatics or all the right power, not because we have the right degrees hanging on the walls in our offices, not because of our children or how much money we have set away, but simply because of God. The good news of the gospel is that when everything else fails, even when we fail ourselves, our knowledge, our minds, our patience, our health, our families, our careers, our sanity, even when all of those things fail, there is water in the dry and parched land of our lives. In other words, when we have the fortitude to admit that we have all sorts of goodness, even though none of us are really that good to begin with, when we can admit that we are sinners saved by the amazing grace of God, then things start to change. Because when you can see that your life is kind of a dry, parched land, that God somehow miraculously makes a way where there is no way that God makes living water in your life, it means that a friend can let you down or even upset you, but it won't undo you because you know that God remains with you no matter what you do. Or a friend or a spouse can speak the harshest, most difficult truth that you will ever hear and it won't destroy you because the harshest truth you've ever heard is already said from the cross and then God says, I forgive you. Because you don't know what you're doing. The power of the gospel means that we can forgive the flaws and the shortcomings of our parents, our children, our friends, even strangers because we know that we are forgiven. I think this story strikes so close to home because it's a story about us. All of us thirst for things, tangible, intangible things. We look, again, to other people, other objects to fill that thirst within us. The world always invites us to vilify one another. The world says, hey, if somebody's in your way, take up a rock, throw it at them until they move out of your way. But the gospel says something different. Instead, the gospel says, you hit the rock and see what I can do. Because from the rock comes a river. The river of living water. There's another story about someone who thirsts in the Bible. I love how the Bible does this. You always think, oh, this story is unique. It's all by itself. No, there's, there's always another story. Jesus is making his way to Galilee and he decides to stop a place called Samaria, which is strange because at the time, no one stopped in Samaria. None of the Jews. They stayed away from that place. But Jesus stops and he rests at a well. 
It's Jacob's well. Uh, the disciples are grumbling because they're hungry. He says, oh, go find something to eat. I'll hang out here by the well. He's there in the middle of the day, and a woman comes. No one goes to a well in the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. You go in the morning when it's shady, when it's cool. But this woman comes in the middle of the day, and she comes carrying an empty bucket. And Jesus sees her, sees every part of her, knows everything about her the moment he sees her. And he sees more than the bucket she's carrying. He sees her emptiness inside. He knows that she is a lot like the rest of us. That she's looked to other people and other things to fill that feeling inside of her. She's gone from place to place. In the story, she's gone from man to man. And every time she walks away, she's just a little bit less than she was before. To the point of the day that she goes to the well... She feels nothing but empty. She comes to the well and she encounters this man named Jesus. And Jesus says, I know you. She says, you don't know me. He says, oh yeah, I do. I know more about you than you do. I know how empty you feel. But I've got good news. He says, I am the living water. I am the well that never runs dry. Whoever thirsts and comes to this well will never be thirsty because I can provide meaning and value and hope and belonging. Because no matter what you do or leave undone, I love you. No matter who you've hurt or who has hurt you, I love you. I am the living water. And when you know the living water, you know that nothing else matters. Because when you know that you're loved, when you know that you are sacred, that you are beautiful beyond measure, that you are precious, nothing else matters. You can do impossible things when you know that God loves you. Because when you know the fullness of God's love for you, nothing else matters. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.